The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Gateless Gate Cohen Collection. No mind, no Buddha. The main case. A student once asked Master Matsu, what is Buddha? Matsu said, no mind, no Buddha. Women's commentary. If you can see into it here, your Zen study has been completed. The verse. If you meet a swordsman in the street, give him a sword. Unless you meet a poet, do not offer her a poem. In talking to people, tell them three-quarters only. Never let them have the other part. So good morning, everyone. We're concluding an introductory retreat this weekend, and as I was contemplating the talk uh, late in the week when I tested negative and thought I could show up, this koan appealed to me because of its simplicity. I think that's where my mind was. You know, when you're sick, everything becomes reduced to the elements. And I thought this koan was a nice um, expression of that. On Friday night, I mentioned to the group that, you know, people come here looking to understand more about Buddhism or meditation or enlightenment. And I spoke a little bit about the underlying urge, impulse. Because in a way, that's, there's something on the surface there, but what's why? Why want to inquire about Buddhism? Why want to learn about meditation? So we come into practice seeking, seeking mind, seeking Buddha, seeking enlightenment, peace, compassion, can be many things, but what is Buddha? What is enlightenment? What is peace, compassion? Well, if we want to seek something, then it seems reasonable that we have to have a, an idea of what that is. First, we need to know something about it. What is it? Otherwise, how will we know if we're on the right path? How will we know if we're getting closer to it? How will we know if we've discovered it? And if a teacher's role is to help the student, then don't they also have to know what those things are? If they're going to recognize, as is their their vow, recognize when the student has discovered something essential within themselves, don't they have to have grasped that within themselves? A student was asked, Master Matsu, how to gain, how does one gain or in a, come into accordance with the way? How does one gain accordance with the way? And Matsu says, I have never gained accordance with the way. And so, of course, there's a, a natural aspect of practice. I spoke about it on Friday night, about understanding the first of the no, noble path, right understanding, to have some basic understandings of the teachings of what practice is, what meditation is, 
It's so easy to misunderstand some of these basic essential concepts, like letting go. It's very easy to misunderstand what that means. And to develop further ideas based on that understanding of letting go that then go directly into what we do when we sit, right? Because when we're sitting, we're sitting based in some understanding, in the understanding that we have about meditation. So if that's not quite clear, then our meditation is going to reflect that. So of course we have to have some understanding. And then there's a point at which that understanding, if we hold on to it too tightly, becomes obstructive. Even if that understanding is correct, accurate, there's a point at which it will actually not serve us, but actually hinder us. And so there's a point at which in order to really understand mind, Buddha, enlightenment, peace, compassion, we have to let go of that understanding in a real way to not hold that idea in the mind so that we can experience it directly. Matsu was one of the towering figures within the Zen tradition, 8th century China. He was actually considered to be quite a towering person, physically quite large. He was fairly early in 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 the tradition, and he went on to teach by Zhang, who was very important, is said to have sort of formulated the first monastic rules within the Zen tradition. And then from there, Huang Po and then Lin Ji. So this was a very important stream of teachers that came come down into our own lineage here. And so there's a previous koan in the same collection where a student came to the Buddha, uh, to Matsu and said, what is Buddha? And Matsu said, mind is Buddha. Mind is Buddha. If the Buddha, if Buddha, if and Buddha here is not really asking a question about the Buddha Shakyamuni, but it's asking a question about Buddha, enlightenment, enlightened nature, your nature. What is that? What is liberation? And so if Buddha, if Dharma, if your unbound nature were something that could be pointed to, that the teacher could say, here, this is it, that they could direct you to it, towards it, then anyone and everyone could grasp it. And grasp it we would, (laughs) to be sure. (laughs) But if it were such a thing, then it couldn't be Buddha, it couldn't be Dharma, it couldn't liberate us. Why? Well, the Buddha realized and said in the beginning and middle and end of his teaching life that all conditioned things are dukkha, subject to dukkha. All conditioned things pass. Conditioned here means anything that is, has come together as a result of other forces, influences, actions, causes and conditions, which is Pretty much everything. If you find something outside of that, let us all know. And because it has come into being as a result of those conditions, and all of those conditions themselves are a result also 
of conditions coming together, and those conditions on, 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 all the way. And that all of those are impermanent. All of those are in a constant state of arising and passing. Nothing has any solid, fixed nature. Then to rely on such a thing would be unreliable, right? Because to rely on something is to rely on something today and tomorrow. That's why you can rely on it. But it will pass away. It's already in a state of dissolution. It only arrives for a moment. And so whatever it offers us, and this is exactly our experience, is whatever things of the world offer us, it's fleeting. And so even every aspect of meditation, letting go, a moment of release, samadhi, the experience of realization. Anything that we experience is of the same nature, which means it's impermanent. It's already passing away. Which doesn't mean that it doesn't have value, doesn't mean that it doesn't, can't be significant, but we just can't rely upon it. And this is one of the difficult aspects of meditation for practitioners is that we, we can practice so diligently to develop our meditation and begin to experience the fruits of our meditation such that when we do, we want to hold on to them, right? Fruits hard won. You don't let them go now. And that, of course, is the meditator's misery, <laughs> right? Because you can't. And so I think most of us have to do that over and over and over again until we realize, okay, this is actually never going to work. And so then we begin to develop faith in letting things pass as they do. A student asked Matsu, what is the essential meaning of Buddhism? Matsu says, what is the essential meaning of this moment? What is it that you're looking for? Whatever meaning we derive can be more or less meaningful, but it's still conceptual. And so what is Buddha? What is realizing Buddha, seeing Buddha, encountering Buddha? We could say that all of practice is to have a direct and intimate encounter with Buddha, your enlightened nature, and then to live that. But what is that? Bodhidharma, who is credited with the sort of beginning the Zen tradition in China, an Indian master, came to China, who had said, taught that Zen is a special transmission outside of scriptures with no reliance on words and letters. So saying very clearly what has been taught and understood in Buddhism since the time of the Buddha, that as important as words are, they cannot give us, bring us to, convey to us directly the experience. When you say the word fire, your mouth does not burn. That rather it's a direct pointing to the mind, to the human mind, to Buddha mind, in the realization of enlightenment. And so when somebody asks Bodhidharma, what is seeing Buddha or meeting Buddha? Bodhidharma said, when you see no characteristic of greed, within your greed, this is seeing the real nature of greed. 
when you see no characteristic, no intrinsic attribute of suffering within your suffering, this is liberating your suffering. When you see no characteristic of the dream within your dreams, then you've realized dream reality. He said, this is called in every locus, in every place, in everything, encountering Buddha, encountering the way, meeting the real truth. But then, of course, the question is, well, what is that locus of enlightenment? What is that place, that thing in which we meet Buddha? Bodhidharma said, the place you are walking on is that very place. The place you are lying on, sitting on, standing on, this is the place. Wherever you lift your feet or put them down, this is the very place of Buddha, of enlightenment. And here he's referring to the four postures of practice the Buddha laid out. And so we take the backward step, as Dogen said, we turn inward, having spent so much of our lives turning out, 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 out. Why? Because that's where all the, I mean, that's where the action is, right? That's where everybody else is looking. That's where things get done. Goals achieved. And of course, there is that, all of that. And so the radical interiorizing of Buddhist practice, the Buddha said, if you actually want to understand this world, if you actually want to live in peace and bring that to everyone and everything you encounter, then there's a radical step that must be taken, and that is to stop and turn the light around. Maybe that's always been difficult. Maybe that's always been a hard sell (laughs) in popular culture, because in every age there's a popular culture. But I wonder if it's harder now than ever before, if we have less trust for that. We just, you know, the general mind state of the world. Particularly as we create more and more dazzling things to get intrigued and entertained by. And so it is kind of radical to stop, right? Because what are you getting from that? What are you producing? What do you get to show for it, right? When you go back home and your friends or family say, what'd you get? And you say, well, I had to wake up at five and wait in line for the toilet and had to do some work. And people are like, what? I thought you were going to go have a weekend of bliss and get away from all the hard stuff. So we take this backward step so we can leap forward. That's the revolution. If we want to leap forward, we have to leap in to that locus, to that one true place. And without any arbitrator, without any mediator, That's why we have to let go ultimately of the words and the ideas and the thoughts and the beliefs so that we go into our zazen plain and naked and fresh, unbiased, to the best of our ability, which in the beginning is partial, right? It's going to be partial at best. But that's the practice. 
And when you see that arbitrator, you see that mediator wanting to stand in between and figure it out for you, describe it for you, tell a story about it, recognize that for what it is. It's something that seems to be standing in between you and a direct experience of you. It's like this. There is a Buddha body sitting on your seat. It has the stability of a mountain. You may not know that yet. I hope you see that. I hope you find that out. It has the life force of a great wind. You may not know that yet. It has the warmth of spring and the coldness of winter. It has the fecundity of summer and the barrenness of a winter landscape. It has the vastness of an open sky. And it knows. It already knows. It has breath. It has awareness. It has attention. It has ardency. It knows what is true and what is not true. It knows what is skillful and not skillful. It has the miracle of faith, of longing, of perseverance, of resilience. These are remarkable qualities. Think of that. These are remarkable qualities that we can that we have resilience, that we can rebound, renew, come again, start over, persevere, continue, despite the logic, because of faith that can never be measured, but you know it when it's in your chest, that we can stop. As the old Chinese master Churi said, we can stop and see. We can rest, truly rest, in a state of such profound relaxation that relaxation does not begin to describe it. That this body, Buddha, sitting on your seat can hold everything. Actually, it is already. It can even hold the belief that you cannot hold everything. It holds that perfectly well. It can hold your belief, your conviction that you don't have these qualities. Mm -mm. Not you. There's room enough even for that. This Buddha body sitting on your seat is entirely within you but it is not you, and that is your freedom. Now we will try and find the place, the point, the center, the locus. We'll try and get there. We'll want to name it, <clears throat> identify it. We've already got stories prepared. Probably already know what it's going to be like. And again and again, because of all that, we'll find something. We'll find something. But it is not the true thing. It is not the thing that we think it is. It's just the thought of that thing. And it will not satisfy us. It cannot. And it will get tangled, and then we will untangle it. And then it will get tangled, and we will untangle it.
and it will get knotted up again. And we will untie that knot. And in that, you are in solidly in the family of Buddhas, doing the Buddha work, doing what has been done since the time of the Buddha. It will seem elusive, frustratingly so, ever out of reach, but it is never hidden. And in time, this mind and this body subtly, sometimes almost despite our convictions to the contrary, will begin to gain trust. We will find ourselves able to abide more easily within this mountain form, be able to more easily access these miraculous qualities that we possess. We will be more easily able to fall within our dullness, our apathy, our lethargy, and our excitement and our agitation, and recover ourselves. And this will develop through endless moments of dullness and agitation and discovery. Finding yourself in that hole, how do you pull yourself out? And you will do that if you choose. You will do that. Because I'll tell you right now, no one is coming to save you. That would be a great disservice. That would be a deception. And it's not necessary. We learn, as every practitioner in every generation has learned, how to draw upon those essential qualities, those virtues, how to practice in accord with the Dharma, and how to meet Buddha. And the deeper the trust develops in your ability to be free, the stronger that trust becomes. The deeper our desire grows to actually become free, not just as an idea, but a reality, that will be able to, we'll be, we'll be able to put that more and more into service. And at such a time, then, Matsu calls to you and says, mind is Buddha. Because now you're ready to hear it. Not as an idea. A successor of one of the many successors of Master Matsu said, mind is Buddha is the teaching for one who wants medicine while they have no disease. We come into practice believing probably pretty much convinced that we're lacking something, something is missing, something is wrong, something needs to be corrected, something definitely needs to be improved. But all the while we have no disease. But in nature is how we speak of that. But that's just an idea, hard to have faith in. And so Matsu brings us to it directly, mind is Buddha. And the commentary to that koan Master Woman is quite indulgent. He says, mind is Buddha. Here you are wearing Buddha clothes, eating Buddha food, speaking Buddha words, living Buddha life. Don't needlessly look here and there. Don't keep running after. If you keep asking what is Buddha, it's like pleading innocence while clutching stolen goods. And so the Buddha said, when we free ourselves of the idea of our attachment to the idea that I am this, 
this is me, my identities, my accomplishments, my histories, my everything. That's what I am. And we'll see the strength of that attachment when those things, one by one, inexorably pass away. Remember, all conditioned things must pass. So and we'll see what we have been relying on to give us that sense of who we are, that sense of purpose and meaning, beyond what those things can actually provide. How will we discover it? In the moment when they begin to pass away and we feel lost. And so the Buddha said, when we free ourselves of those ideas, I am this, this is me, and everything that I possess is mine, then we can see that self-nature and other nature are the same. All things are liberated from the beginning. Nothing is incomplete unto itself. To see no characteristic of greed and greed, no characteristic of suffering and suffering, Things don't have intrinsic characteristics that then act upon us and make us experience certain things. What is Buddha? Mind is Buddha. What is delusion? Mind is delusion. But how about when we realize that? That all things are empty of any intrinsic attributes, characteristics, self-power? No suffering, no greed, no dream. We can still be in possession of that. That's why Master Yunman said a good thing is not as good as no thing at all. And so this successor went on to say, no mind, no Buddha is the phrase for one who cannot do away with the medicine when the disease has been cured. The Buddha likened it to a raft. You get to a raging stream, you want to get across, you build a raft, it carries you across, you don't need to carry the raft on your back. Its purpose has been served. And so when we are, the illness is having no illness, then Matsu says, no mind, no Buddha. I was thinking of how, you know, you see this particularly in the city, how in the slightest crack of concrete or just in the mortar, between two bricks on a building. Once a little bit of dust begins to collect, something can sprout. A weed, a flower, a seed can take hold and sprout. And our own weeds can be like that. And so our vows, our Bodhisattva vows to liberate ourselves, reflect this aspiration to be honest and thoroughgoing, right? Because our grasping habits are strong. Our false views are deeply embedded, right? I mean, it's completely unrealistic to think that we're just going to toss them away, which is probably pretty much what's always happening when we get frustrated in practice. I'm no good at this, it's not going fast enough, I'm not there yet, I should have been done with this, I thought I was done with this. Pretty much every time I've encountered others or when I reflect back on my own, you know, having put myself in such a spot, the practitioner was fine, is fine. You're fine. Your practice is fine. 
What's troubling you is that idea that it's supposed to be something else. That's what's troubling you. If we can see that and have faith, more faith in the Dharma than in our attachment to that idea, and you might think it'd be easy to let go of that because it's causing you trouble, but Lord have mercy. We hold on to that tightly. Because if I'm not that, then what am I? How can we practice such vastness? How can we be so diligent? How can we free ourselves of all attachments to desires? Isn't that just another attachment to perfection? Absolutely not. It's a vow. It's a living thing. So how do we do that? As it is in the beginning, it is in the middle, it is in the end. Take your seat. Settle your body. Turn your attention in. Bring it to the breath. Open your mind. Pay attention. That's how. One breath, one awareness, one step, one moment. That's the only place practice occurs. No one has ever come to enlightenment yesterday. No one has ever come to enlightenment in the next moment. No no one has ever let go of anything previously or in in the next period. It only happens in this one moment which has no essence, as Matsu said. And so there is a Buddha body sitting on your seat. It has the stability of a mountain. It has breath. It has awareness. It has faith and perseverance. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So when the student is sitting and practicing and comes in and says, I can't do this, I say, can't do what? Looks to me like you're doing it. What is the it that you think you can do? Can't keep doing it? All right. But what does that mean? In that moment, where are you positioning yourself? Because that's an idea. It's like standing at the base of a mountain saying, I can't climb this mountain. I can't climb this mountain. Well, maybe you're not climbing. Take a step. So then you take a few steps and you can't, I can't take another step. Are you sure? Are you sure? A student once asked Master Matsu, why do you teach that mind is Buddha? Matsu said, in order to stop the baby from crying. What's it like when the baby stops crying? The student said, and Matsu said, no mind, no Buddha. Then the student went on to say, without using mind as Buddha, no mind, no Buddha, how would you teach someone? Matsu said, I would say, it's not a thing. Don't make it a thing. Don't try and practice a fantasy. Don't live in a non-reality. And so maybe that's one way of helping ourselves is when we're caught up in our, in our stories and our ideas of things and the reality seems to be getting further and further away to actually say, oh, I'm telling myself a story. Oh, I'm creating a fantasy. Oh, I'm dreaming. Say it like it is. Why not? Be a fair witness. I have found that that can really help. It suddenly can bring that perspective into the mind. It's like, oh, 
I'm making this shit up. <laughs> I'm putting a lot of energy into making this shit up. Why? Why am I doing that? <laughs> well, because I've been taught to. In the commentary, it says, in one, if you can see into it here, your Zen study has been completed. I think that's about the most terse commentary within the whole collection. Period. Now, of course, that can be very, it's true, what he's saying. But it, it means if we can really see into it here, which means we may have to very well see into it over and over and over again. We have to realize that seeing into this is going to take some time. In one moment of clear seeing, everything is present, but it's not yet clear. How do we know it's all present? Because nothing has ever been hidden. How do we know it's not yet fully clear? Because our life shows us that. So everything is present, but it's not all been seen or clarified or realized. That's fine. That's why we train. That's why we practice for more than a day, for more than an experience. And even more so, to fully integrate it within this karmic body. There's the real test. Live it. Because there's almost always a lag. Right? Dogen spoke of harmonizing inner and outer. If you meet a swordsman in the street, give them a sword. Unless you meet a poet, don't offer a poem. In talking to people, tell them three quarters only. Never let them have the other part. Well, that might sound a little stingy. Why not give them the whole thing? So a woman is saying, offer what somebody can actually receive. It's a very important aspect of practice. That although our capacity, because we have Buddha nature, is complete, in the present moment, our capacity to receive is not. That's why the teachings are offered over and over and over and over. And one moment you hear something that you've never heard before, and you go to the teacher and say, why didn't, didn't you ever say this before? And the teacher said, I've been saying it for years. When we're ready, we hear. So offer a sword to a swordsman, a poem to a poet. But what about the one who doesn't know that they could wield the sword? What about the person who doesn't yet know that they're a poet? Woman is talking about not being stingy, but about compassion, not about a lack of faith in the student's capacity, but actually a great faith. And to offer what is skillful, what will be helpful in this moment, because this is just one moment in time. And it's, it actually contains a very important element of Buddhist practice. One aspect of which is that each of us who is sitting in this hall, is listening to this talk, has brought ourselves here. That is so important. So sometimes when parents will come to a retreat like this with their children, or their child, I'll always turn to the child and say, did they make you come? Because <laughs> I want to know, did you bring yourself here? 
I hope you brought yourself here. How important that is. And that that keeps happening at every step along the way. That when a person becomes a student and they go in and do nine bows and ask for the teaching, that's a formal, very important moment in which to do that in a very conscious and deliberate way. For the student to bring that forward and the teacher to hear that and say, yes, I will meet you there. But it has to keep happening. We have to keep asking, keep asking. If the teacher tries to help the student to avoid their own solitary path into their own inner chamber and discover what no one can show them directly, if the teacher gets in the way of that, that's a terrible thing. Within the Dharma, that's a tremendous disservice. It's not trusting the student. In a way, it means the teacher doesn't trust themselves. Maybe they haven't had that experience, weren't nurtured and left alone on top of the solitary mountain, left alone in a desert and said as they were leaving, oh, by the way, no one is coming to save you. And that's the good news. Because you don't need to wait. If the teacher does not understand that and, and, and allow the student that. For, a, for, a, for some students, they will take that as what there is to, they will take that as Buddha Dharma. They will take their experience as having completed their study. For a more sincere, thoroughgoing student, it may dampen their potential. I've seen it happen. Students come and visit here, and they are, they have a potential that is not being fully brought out, is not being believed in. Teachers who give too much, confirm too early, praise too excessively. It's one of the sort of austerities, you might say. Right? It's coming from a place of faith and trust in the individual. That means you. That you already know, you have all of those virtues. You are that Buddha body sitting in this mountain form. You are here for crying out loud. The hard part, a big part of the hard part, has been done. <laughs> Finding our way to the Dharma. I remember talking to my teacher once years ago when when a senior student who felt like they had accomplished enough and were chomping at the bit because they weren't being acknowledged in the way that they felt like they should, and they left and went to study with somebody where they got what they wanted. And I said to my teacher, because the practice is intended to build confidence and trust within oneself and in one's understanding, I said, why doesn't that happen every time? <laughs> Why does that happen all the time? And he said, well, as part of the teacher's job is to continually be showing the student what is not yet clear. And as part of the student's job, first and foremost, to be humble and to see what is not yet clear yet and to be motivated by that, to want to be thoroughgoing. 
And so when Matsu says, no mind, no Buddha, in a sense, he's taking everything away so that you can realize everything is here. I hope that those of you who have come here had a good experience and that it was helpful to you and that it inspires you in some way to keep moving forward in your path. You know how to find us. If you want to return, we'd be happy to see you and practice with you. And if you find your direction in another path, please pursue it with your heart. I'll end with a poem. Mind is Buddha, no mind, no Buddha. The heart that is beating within your chest is the song of wind and fire, living and dying. So many stories of the great wandering seeker seen from afar who appears glittering and majestic. Enough now. If you want to satisfy this hunger, there is a place at the table just for you. And though you can take your seat at any time, please don't linger too long, enjoying the dancing in the streets, for it never ends. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.